Hi, this is Eric Ludi for the Daily Thunder Podcast. If you are enjoying these messages and want to take these truths even deeper, I invite you to join us in Windsor, Colorado at Ellerslie for one of our upcoming five-week or week-long discipleship training programs. Ellerslie's discipleship training has been designed to ignite your spiritual fire and to give you the tools for a Christianity that really works. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Sort of fun having uh, Leslie poke her head into this series on Wednesday, and I just loved uh, her message, and I'm actually really excited to see how the second part of that is going to go this next Wednesday. But uh, we are in the thick of a a series called Daring to Do as Stanley Dale, and this is episode eight in that series, Uh, a very unique texture uh, to this one, and it deals with a common challenge that we face, especially in our modern day, but it's not just a modern issue, but it is, it has new clothing in our modern day, and that has to do with what we could call the ethics of missions. Is it appropriate for us to go into someone else's culture and tell them that they're wrong and that they need to change the way that they live? Just think about how rude that sounds. Everything about it sounds inappropriate, and many people in our world deem it inappropriate. And as a result, there is oftentimes an attack on the idea of missions work for that very reason. And so for us as Christians, we need to know our footing in this. We need to know why we are willing to go into hostile situations and proclaim something that might be counter to the culture in which we are stepping into. Ironically, we are in America, and if you want to speak the truth of Jesus Christ, it is counter to the culture in which we now live. This used to be a vaguely Christian culture here in America. I don't want to say a completely Christianized culture. But it's had its moments of awakening where Christianity was thoroughly uh, integrating into the society. But we've moved past a uh, Christian culture into not just a post-Christian culture, but an anti-Christian culture. And so therefore, the same question could be asked today. Is it appropriate for you to press your beliefs upon someone else? And this is the issue of what we could call missions. And so it's important, again, that we get our footing and we know where we stand as believers on these issues. And so when we're dealing with Irian Jaya, Papua New Guinea, back in the 1930s through the 1970s, you have an invasion. And it's even called that. A lot of even the, the people that were there, it was God's invasion is one of the terms of one of the books that's well known to describe what God did. It's like God sort of took over an island. Is that appropriate? Should God do something like that? I mean, can't you just let these people be? They have their culture and they have their way. They have their dress. They have their food. And can't you just accept that, that it's different than yours? I mean, who are you to think that your way of doing something is better? And so, this is not just the question uh, of the ages. This is the question of the now. Uh, Pope Gregory 700 years ago, issued a decree to the Catholic Church that you were not supposed to try and change a culture, but you were to, since everyone was seeking God, just sort of adapt their beliefs to the gospel. And that created somewhat of a crisis throughout history for certain Catholic missionaries that were like, but what do we do with child sacrifice? How do I integrate that into the gospel? How do I deal with the fact that they're burning widows alive when their husbands die? They burn them uh, they, they stick them in a tomb and burn them. Uh, it's like, is that, how do I integrate that into the gospel? And so at a certain point, you have to come to the place where you say, this is evil, this is good, and we need to actually prosper that which is good and not actually pat on the back that which is evil. Not all cultures are equal. Not all ideas are right. There is truth and there is lie, and we need to discern between the two. So we call this one the two-on invasion. Now, we've already sort of hinted to what a two-on is, 
uh, in a past message, but a, a, a tuon is going to be the, the term typically used for these foreigners that are entering into this island of Papua New Guinea. What is a tuon? And so, depending on which tribe it is, like the Yali say a duong, and uh, the Doni tribe says it, say a tuon. And so it sort of depends probably on how they articulate and how they speak. <clears throat> so listen to this. This is a rather humorous way of describing it. Remember, at this time, back in the, this is in the 60s, every tuon that was coming to the island had white skin. Okay, it doesn't mean that all missionaries are white-skinned. It just happens to be that these are the ones. There are a lot of them were from Canada and America, from Holland and from Australia. And so it was all white-skinned people that were coming in. And so that was very different than the dark skin that was present on the island at the time. So you could just imagine how shocking that would be if you didn't even know it existed, uh, let alone seen it and what it would have looked like. So this is Don Richardson describing this, this, uh, the Sawi people and their reasoning. One of my favorite things about Don Richardson is he does a great job of getting into the skin of the Sawi and the Yali when he writes his books so that you actually think like them. And you, can, you have a certain tender spot when you, when you allow him to bring you into that where you actually can say, you know what? I, I can understand why they're reasoning this way. I can see why they're concluding that way. It may be wrong, but you at least understand it. The consensus reports seem to indicate that tuons were extremely large beings. How frightening. They were also known to be generally friendly. This was reassuring. Nevertheless, they were said to possess weapons capable of spurting fire with a sound like a thunderclap. Seasoned warriors trembled. They also were reported to be very much opposed to headhunting and cannibalism. How fortunate that the headhunting Kayagar and the cannibal headhunting Azmat were being exposed to that kind of influence. Their skin was said to be as white as new sago flour. How unsightly they must look. <laughs> and very cool to touch. Isn't that interesting? Very cool to touch. Could it be that they're not really human at all? Which was the conclusion of many tribes. They looked at Tuans as supernatural beings. Their hair, furthermore, was straight or wavy, but never kinky, and they covered themselves with strange skins so completely that their actual persons were hardly visible. <laughs> How difficult it must be to know them as they really are. <laughs> Most informants affirmed that no female Tuon had ever been seen, though more distant sources claimed a few such existed. How they must have to fight to obtain wives if there are so few women. <laughs> what is a two-on? So there's various ways to interpret this. You know, some could just say, well, that just means a white person. But actually, you know, some would say it's a long nose. And so and the way a lot of the tribes would think, I think I said this in a, a previous message, was to stroke the, the nose. And so that would mean like very wise, uh, right? So a long-nosed foreigner, also known as a very wise one, and it could be translated as just a white man. That's what they all were at the time. So uh, depending on how you were introduced to the word. Why would a Tuan come to a Sawi tribe? So let's look at the Sawi as they were attempting to digest this, and this is what they said to one another. This is very interesting. When the question was relayed to Hurup, he shrugged his hulking shoulders, and he said, you must think the Tuans are the same as us, he exclaimed. If one of us moves to a certain place, you can know it is because he has much unharvested sago there, or because he is moving further away from his enemies, or because he wants to live where his father used to live. But the Tuans care little for sago. They seem to have no enemies. They are not tied to the land of their forefathers. They come where they want to come. They go where they want to go. They stay where they want to stay. No one ever knows what they will do or why. Isn't that interesting just to sort of get into the framework of this tribe and to recognize, you know, from both sides, this is a very shocking process of what is taking place. When you, I mean, th these are oftentimes described as Stone Age people. They have never been exposed to modern technologies. Everything they do is literally from Stone Age ideas. In other words, they have to sharpen 
rocks or sticks to accomplish things. They form, they build their own spears. They don't have metal as we would understand it. And so at the most basic level, they are so far removed from things like airplanes. So when an airplane flies over, they think it is some kind of spirits, you know, uh, thing that is, that is nearing and it's, you know, has, it doesn't look like it could really be a bird. I mean, what is that thing? And so as a result, their, their worldview is so limited that it is shocking when these two-ons arrive. The ethics of missions. Is it okay to invade, convert, baptize, and wholly alter the people of a foreign culture? It's a very unique question because I think a lot of us start with a premise, maybe because of how we were raised, that we would say, of course, if it is the kingdom of heaven that you're establishing. And yet, we need to realize we live in a generation especially which this is a hypersensitivity, where it's just like, how dare you think that you are more right than they? How dare, how dare you impose your religious views on someone else? Okay, so this is a very, very common thing here in America, let alone when we think about how that applies to other cultures. So the two mission fields that are currently incorrect... So I'm calling both of these fields, and I'm also saying that they're both incorrect, which means that to handle them a certain way is actually deemed by pop culture to be wrong. And one is the fields of the lost, and the other one is the fields of the fatherless. So both of them are fields that are like harvest fields that have so many souls in them. The amount of lost people on this earth is staggering. It, it is estimated, and I don't know, you know, you, you sort of say, how in the world would they know this to be true? However, they know how many people estimated are dying each day, right? So uh, that, what is it, every day 150,000 people die not knowing Jesus and go to hell. I mean, that's a, that's a staggering amount. I mean, if you were to look at a, a, a very large arena or I'm sorry, a large stadium full of people. If you had a 100,000-person stadium, that is a massive stadium. I mean, that's like bigger than most stadiums. And that's not even the full amount. And if you were to recognize every single one of them is going to die, it's a significant amount. And so when you recognize the amount of loss it's, it's, that are even dying, it's significant. The fatherless, the numbers are hard to pin down because you have to, you know, how do you define someone who's fatherless? Is, how do you define an orphan? Is it someone that doesn't have parents that can supply? Is it someone whose parents are dead? You know, there's various qualifications, but the estimate is somewhere around 150 million uh, in the world. That is, you try and just, I, I remember we did an exercise when I was in elementary school of the number of million, and the goal was to make a million marks uh, on paper. And so, you would you know, take one piece of paper and you'd, you'd fill it up and you'd hardly made any. And to make a million marks was just stacks and stacks and stacks of paper. You begin to realize a million is so much, and that's what they were trying to teach us in elementary school, is just how big a million is. When you stick 150 million, it is, it's monopoly money, and we lose sort of sight of it. We lose connection with it. And that's very common for us to do today is to detach from the real problem because it's too big. And yet these are fields that are incorrect. And the reason I'm using that term is it is incorrect according to our current cultural model for you to invade these zones and proclaim that you can solve them or that they need to be fixed. We all know that there's a problem with orphans, you know, and the, you know, it is an issue. However, let the government of that land deal with it. This isn't your business. As far as I last checked, you were an American, and you have nothing to do with Ethiopia. So leave Ethiopia alone. So this is a common thing that is increasing in its scope to shut down our involvement in helping those that are fatherless. The same thing is happening in missions. It's like, hey, this has nothing to do with you. Let the people of that country deal with their own lostness as opposed to you thinking you know best, you American, coming in and messing things up in their country. So the fields of the loss, let's start with that one. The issue is Christian missionaries in foreign lands. Let's look at the word of, the, the word of God on the subject because that's really all that matters. <clears throat> Here's one scripture just to sort of start us off. 
Go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, I could just end this message right here, right? Because that doesn't mince words. It doesn't stutter. It just says it very clearly. All the world, every creature. Which means there is no barrier to the commission that Christ, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, has given to us so that we are commissioned to proclaim. We are called to do something very specific, and our calling isn't at the governmental level of society. It's like we don't have to go check off with the government and and ask them. It's like, is it okay that I preach the gospel? Because our commission comes from higher than that, from an authority that is far above anything of this earth. We've been asked by God Almighty, and that's actually what, what Peter and John are going to say when they are told to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Is it better for us to obey God or man? And that's the, com- the same question that we have to deal with in this hour. Even if man says, shut up, you're not allowed to speak Jesus here. That is it better for us to obey that man or should we go higher and obey our God? So the command to go, shine light, bear witness, teach, preach, pronounce, and holy alter society. Is there precedent for it? Yes, and this could be a very long message going through it. So on the screen, I have 15 scriptures. I'm just going to read them for anyone in a podcast that they could actually just grasp this. We're not going to go through all of these because that's not really the entire point of this. This is sort of a simple meditation. But Matthew 28, 16 through 19. Psalm 22, 27 through 28, Psalm 98, 2 through 3, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, Isaiah 49, 6, Isaiah 52, 10, Isaiah 66, 18 through 19, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, Luke 24, 47 through 48, Acts 1, 8, Acts 13, 46 through 47, Acts 28, 28, Romans 10, 8, and Colossians 1, 23. So the hip trend amongst cool Christians today. <clears throat> See, there's a way that you can be cool and hip in your Christianity. I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. I usually like to say that cool uh, is another word for lukewarm. And if you read Revelation about what God does with lukewarm, uh, he spits it out of his mouth. He's not a fan of lukewarm. He wants hot or cold. And so I'm not a fan of cool Christianity. When you try and be hip and, and fashionable and appropriate to the world so the world is nodding along and patting you on the back, usually you're compromising, okay? That's, I shouldn't even just say usually, I should just say always. So indigenous is the current popular, popular vocabulary word amongst the cool kids. Anyone who is not indigenous is a problem and should be removed from the equation. So indigenous means from the country already. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm a big fan of indigenous, right? But this is the cool word. This is what you have to have. After all, Americans mess things up with their Americanism. You see, I'm not indigenous to Papua New Guinea. Uh, I'm not from Papua New Guinea. I don't have heritage from Papua New Guinea. So therefore, if I go into Papua New Guinea, I'm just going to mess Papua New Guinea up. We need to stay clear of foreign lands and let the locals do the best that they can do. We, of course, can visit these countries, see their plight, and provide secondary support but we dare not involve ourselves too deeply in the work that should only be done by the locals. End conclusion. Missionaries, you are not needed. Okay, so just follow the logic on that, and part of it's based on a truth, which is the strength of changing a culture is to actually impact the indigenous and then have them rise up as missionaries. However, what if they don't know the truth? Then someone who does needs to get out of their comfort zone and come to them to speak it. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so it's not how beautiful are the feet who have the good news and keep it at home. It's those who are willing to carry it where it's needed. So who's leading the discussion? That's a good question because we have all sorts of thoughts and they sound so wise today. But who's talking? Who's the one that's presenting these ideas, that is getting missionaries to stay home? Oh, it's, all, it's always better that we just stay in our own homeland. Very common statement through Christianity today. When God leads the discussion and God's terms are utilized. So let's imagine if God led the discussion. Let's look at his terms in Scripture. As Christians, we go and we seek and save the lost. 
Christians break bonds and we deliver the oppressed and we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We invite the poor into our houses and we clothe the naked and we are unashamed to do this. And we happily receive the scorn and the shame and embrace the cross that will certainly be erected for us as a result of our being sent in the authority and the power of the Spirit with the express purpose of demonstrating love and delivering the good news unto those at enmity with the living God. So if you got that via podcast, hopefully you heard my emphasis on different words and we're recognizing there's all sorts of different vocab words or vocab phrases that we could say could be lifted out of the New Testament understanding of what our commission is. And so if we were to look just at that, what are we going to be charged to do? Missionaries, you must go. Missionaries, don't let moss grow on you. You have something that's been entrusted to you. Leverage it. Use it. Okay, so that would be our conclusion. That's the conclusion of the church throughout the ages. We don't sit here and twiddle our thumbs. We have a job to do. When the enemy leads the discussion and his terms are utilized, you'll notice that this is going to sound very different. And yet, at the same time, you're going to recognize some of these terms. Christians need to be sensitive to these other cultures and other religions. Their native beliefs are just as right as our native American Christian brand of religion. We must not attempt to brainwash and indoctrinate these simple folk into our way of living, and we must understand the benefit of their unique cultural expressions of faith. American Christian missionaries have historically created more damage than positive value. They are attempting to export their personal spirituality into foreign lands instead of respecting and celebrating the different flavorings of indigenous belief unique to the many corners of the earth. Whoa. So what's the end conclusion of that? Missionaries, uh, just stay home. So you see the tension in this? The culture has, has a way of expressing themselves right now. They have a whole narrative for it that basically, if you were to look at it, shuts the entire missionary machine of Christianity down. And as a result, you could sort of say, where does it come from? What is the source of something that would cause all of us here in this country to say, well, actually, I would only do harm if I went out there? What, what would be sponsoring such a notion? Who, out of all the personalities that you could come up with and think of, would be desirous to keep the gospel at bay and those that hold it clearly from going and speaking it? Hmm. I'll let you hazard some guesses as to what that is and who it is. Now let's look at the fields of the fatherless. Here's the issue. Christian families adopting foreign children. Very unique tension now. Now, the guy talking to you has four adopted kids, right? And three of them from outside the country. So I adopted from foreign lands, if you want to say it that way. And there are certain people that are very disturbed by that. And I'll, I'll try and get you into the mindset of that. Because some of you, when you look at my family, are like, that is so beautiful. Oh, how precious. Yeah, but other people don't look at it that way, Okay because they can only probably hazard a guess that I'm one of those Christians and that now I'm going to brainwash these, these kids from other countries into my brand of American spirituality. And so as a result, there's a tension over this. So let's look at false premise number one. All parenting is equal. Now I'm going to call that a false premise. Okay. In other words, there could be a lot of parents, and they could, that could be a valid parent over there, and I mean, they really are a parent to that child, and here's another parent over here, but that doesn't mean that both of their styles or their modes of parenting are equal. There could be a good version of parenting, and there could be a bad version of parenting. The fact that I'm even saying that could cause some people to be really upset with me. Who are you to judge their version of parenting? Ironically, uh, Courts of law do it all the time, and they say, this is harmful to the child, right? But there's a grid that you're reasoning from. And of course, we as Christians have a grid of an outcome for a child, and that is that they would walk with Christ, that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that they would be changed to love Jesus and serve Jesus with their life. That's an outcome that we know Jesus wants for every single one of us. And so it is our privilege to help children understand that. However, not everyone would deem that as good parenting. So you need to realize 
that when you start handing over the definition of good parenting to civil authorities, you can end up with funny conclusions at times. But this is a false premise, and that is that all parenting is equal. The lie is known as universalism, okay? Big word, I don't want you to stress about it, uh, and it has a lot of different uses in the Christian world. One of the most common uses of it, universalism is all roads lead to God, everyone ends up in heaven, okay? In other words, in the long run. So this is the idea of universalism. All roads lead to the same place, heaven. There is no hell because there really is no right and no wrong, and therefore there is no need for anyone to go there. All parenting choices, all religious practices, and all cultural behaviors are equal before God. So I want you to chew on that, and I want you to exercise your own soul and your own mind with the truth that you know in the Word of God. Is that something you should be swallowing? So I'm going to call that the lie, so you know my perspective on it, right? I'm going to say the truth. Sin is real. Which means if sin is present, it actually distorts and perverts the behavior of someone from what it could be if they didn't have sin. But since sin is real, since there is a right and a wrong, that means that when you violate the right and you do the wrong, it's called sin. And if sin is real, that means if someone is functioning as sin, it actually creates hazards. It leads to death. And that should be avoided at all costs. So here's uh, the truth. All ideas, homes, cultures, and parenting styles are not equal. All roads do not lead to heaven, and there is such a place as hell. A family where the mother spends every cent of the family's money on drugs, starving them, using the body of her children for ritual abuse, tormenting them, and exposing her innocent children to every devilish deviance is not the same as a healthy Christian family environment. And so to say that is dangerous, okay? And I just said it out loud. It's even on a podcast here. I mean, can you believe I just said that? That I'm saying that they're not equal? I'm saying one's better than the other? Mm -hmm. And I will stand by that. False premise number two. So I'm saying this is a false premise. First family, first culture, and first religion is to be protected at all costs. So you pop out of your mother's womb, and you are in your first family. And you say, mama, and that's your, that's your first family, all right? And you are in a first culture, okay? So imagine that's Haiti. And your first religion uh, might be voodoo, <laughs> okay? So, but that's your first. And according to the false premise, your first family, your first culture, and your first religion is to be protected at all costs. And there's some wisdom in that. For instance, Hudson's first family and his first culture and his first religion, I would hope that the American government would not just allow someone from Sudan to sweep in and take Hudson from me and say, we're going to raise him you know, uh, in some weird, uh, strange tribal religion in Africa. Okay? And I would be like, okay, can someone protect this? This is, this is not good that this is happening. And where we can restore a child that is orphaned with his family, praise God, that's an amazing thing. However, we also want to go after that family to make sure that they are healthy to care for that child. However, this is, I'm going to call this a false premise. And I'm wondering with what you've learned so far, even at Ellerslie, if you can see why it is a false premise. But the false charge is when Christian families strip a child of their first habitat and first culture, they wound the child and distort the child. For a child was never meant to grow up outside its family, culture, and religion of origin. So that's the premise that they have. That's the charge. This child, if they're from Haiti, was never meant to grow up outside of Haiti or outside the religion of Haiti or outside of his family in Haiti. But what if that child was abandoned by his family in Haiti and doesn't even have parents? What if no one in Haiti will take the child and the orphanage that he's in is an unhealthy place. He doesn't have parents. Is it better to keep him there or is it better for there to be another alternative? So the lie is this. This is this first habitat lie. It's called environmentalism. The earth is first. First habitat is primary. The creature or the culture is of greater value than the creator. It's also known as idolatry. Where we worship the earth 
over the one who created it. And we cherish our first habitat over the second one, which is heaven. <laughs> it's the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this is actually supposed to be our true habitat, not Adam, but Christ. Do you want to preserve your first location, your first position, or are you willing to give that up so that you can truly live? This is ironically the message of the gospel. We do not seek to just preserve first. We desire to move people into seconds because that's what the kingdom of heaven is about. It's about life. So let's look at the truth. Heaven is real. It sounds like some kind of movie that came out recently. I, I never saw it, but it sure does have a ring to it. But it, this is the truth. Heaven is a real place. There is a greater place to live. There is a greater location to find your life in. Earthly heritage is not primary. Rather, the heavenly culture is primary. Being born again, having a second life, is the primary agenda of God for every person upon this earth. Our citizenship is not meant to be of this earth, but of heaven. When Christians raise children, they don't train them to be of an earthly culture, but of a heavenly one. Christians who happen to live in America don't raise American children, but Christian children. My goal with my kids is not to raise them to be American. It's to raise Christians. And that doesn't matter anywhere in the world. And I would say that to every culture. When you are redeemed from earthly culture, what you are redeemed into, what you are transferred into, is heavenly culture. So as a result, what we want for everyone, including ourselves here in America, is not to just be American. We want to be Christian. And when we adopt children into our homes, it's to raise them not to be Americans, because we think America is the only way or is the best way. America has tremendous amounts of weaknesses. And so when you raise a child to be American, you're almost setting them up for hell right off. It is not more right than Irian Jaya in that sense. So to raise them to be Irian Jayan or to be American, both can lead you to hell. What you need to be is Christian. It's the second life that matters. It's the second heritage that we want to be grafted into. False premise number three. These children must not be born again. There is, I know it sounds like a funny, funny statement, but it's a big deal. I mean, in a lot of closed countries, it's not that you have confessed with your mouth uh, that Jesus is Lord. It's when you're baptized. That's like a huge issue to people, and which is, I think, ironic and interesting. But it is a big deal. These children must not be born again. So if you're trying to take them and convert them and do all this. I mean, this is just like the highest crime. The false charge. Christians are overriding that which is native to these little children. These children's families, culture, and religion is what was intended for them. How dare these Christians seek to strip a child of this first environment in order to bring them into a new and different one. So you can see the arguments going from missionary work to adoption being identical. It's a violation of that which is native and that which is first. And when you violate that which is first, what are you tackling? The enemy's kingdom. That's what you're after. Which is why you see the enemy contriving all this smart-sounding gibberish to make it seem like if you were the cool kid, you would never violate someone's first condition. You would never violate someone's first heritage, their first religion, their first culture. I mean, how could you? How unfeeling can you be, O oh Christian? The lie is called worldliness. The first birth must never be violated, says worldliness. That which is native must be protected, guarded, and celebrated. And so when you remain worldly, what are you? You're becoming like the world around you, the culture in which you grew up in. So as a church, if we are a worldly church, what are we? We're like the American culture around us but we just smack on a little Jesus. This concept is the death knell to Christianity. This is not how we function. We do not function with worldliness. We are set apart from it. We are other than the world in which we live. Our goal in changing people and bringing them to Jesus isn't to make them American. It's to bring them into the kingdom of heaven because even we, our first identification is not that we are American. We are Christians, 
Our desire is not to lead people to Americanism, Canadianism. It's to bring them to Christ. And that is what gets lost in the mix. So what is the truth? A second birth is essential. Our first birth is of this earth, earthy, as Paul says in Corinthians. It is of the flesh, and we are controlled by the power of sin. Our first father is the devil. Our first culture is that of darkness. And our first religion is self-worship. Jesus stipulates that we must have a second birth, and we must be transferred from the kingdom of darkness unto his kingdom of light. Continued, Christians shouldn't hesitate to lovingly admonish everyone on earth, whether they be Haitian, Chinese, Sudanese, Swedish, or American, to repent from this first birth and be born anew. In other words, I'm going to have the same message for an American as I'm going to have for someone in Sudan, as I would have for someone in Haiti, as I would have for someone in Irian Jaya. It doesn't change. We all must be born again. Continued. The idea of adoption and transfer from culture and religion of one nation under the culture and religion of another is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the context of the gospel, this transfer is not something that damages a person, but something that in fact heals, regenerates, and wholly rescues a person. Welcome to the thinking of the kingdom of heaven. To see them transfer from a first culture, a first religion, a first birth of, you know, in Adam, into the kingdom of the dear son, into the mentality of the kingdom of heaven, into the culture of the kingdom of heaven is what rescues them, not what harms them and damages them. Strange fact. I know this is going to catch you a little off guard, guys, but listen closely. God doesn't mind disturbing the first. We have the ultimate missionary, Jesus Christ. This guy is going to come into a different culture with a different message, and he is going to totally turn it upside down. He is going to aggravate and frustrate the world in which he's coming into because they love their darkness more than they love the light. They're going to crucify him. And yet, he's going to be the picture-perfect missionary. This is what we are called to, to be as Christ as it is said, so I send you. As the Father sent him, so I send you, says Jesus. We are the sent ones. That's what apostle means. We are the ones that are supposed to carry this gospel to the ends of the earth. Missionaries. Deuteronomy 32, 11 through 13. As an eagle stirs up her nest, flutters over her young, spreads abroad her wings, takes them, bears them on her wings, so the Lord alone, so the Lord alone did lead Jacob, and there was no strange God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth. So it's interesting, God is likening himself to a mother eagle in this situation. A mother eagle is an interesting study. First of all, they're, they're going to pick very high locations for their uh, for their nests. One of the m most popular spots, I don't know, could be in all of Colorado, could be in North America, I don't know, four eagle nests is right across uh, the lake here. So we've, we've had upwards of 50 uh, eagles nesting over here at any given time, uh, and there's certain seasons of the year where that's more common. So it's pretty cool that we live in a spot, so we might as well talk about eagles, don't you think, uh, since we're at Win in Windsor, right near uh, that exact territory on the Poudre Trail. So a mother eagle will, will build a nest uh, very high up, and they are mansions for birds. I mean, compared to typical nests, these are like mansions. And there's a downy soft part to every feather, and a mother eagle will spread that downy soft around the interior of the nest. So this is not just big and high and safe, but it is very comfortable. And so baby eaglets will move in uh, to this mansion, and it's a great way to start, you have to admit. I mean, if you're going to be a bird, you want to be an eagle. Uh, I, I love eagles, by the way. And so, I mean, this is, this is a great start. And so everything is going wonderful for baby eaglet in his first habitat, in his first nest, right? Every, everything's great. And that, but God is going to stir up his first nest. And so the way an eagle does this 
is they are going to first just start turning everything up. You remember that downy soft thing? Well, there's also some parts of, of, uh, of feathers that aren't too cozy, uh, right? And they, they stick you. And so Mother Eagle is going to turn up the nest. It's called stirring up the nest so that everything sharp and pointy is actually uh, now gouging into Baby Eaglet. And Baby Eaglet is like really struggling going, what just happened to Mama? Okay, Mama, did you go insane? And then right when Mama, you know, is, you know, could have answered the question, instead of answering it, she starts hovering. Now, you've seen a hummingbird hover, right? It takes a lot of wind pressure to hold, a, uh, to hold a, any, any object up, but an eagle's body is bigger than most birds. So for an eagle to hover, you could just imagine the wind current that has to be created underneath it. And where does Mother Eagle do it? Right over the nest. She hovers over the nest, and baby eaglet, who is now on top of a whole bunch of pinions, a whole bunch of sharp, pointy things, right, is pressed against it and is trying to survive, thinking mama has gone crazy. All this downward pressure, as baby eaglet presses against it to survive, baby eaglet is strengthening a muscle in, we'll call him a he, in his arms or in his wings that otherwise would disable him from flight. But since that is being strengthened, at the same time, there's a lubricant, an oil that is being secreted in and through the strain, in and through the stress against this downward pressure that is lubricating the wings for flight. Of course, baby eaglet doesn't see it this way. If you were to interview baby eaglet at this exact time, <laughs> baby eaglet would not have a lot of positive things to say about his life and the effects of his first nest being stirred up, his first environment being tampered with. Okay, at any point in time, you could interview someone in that transitionary process of being invaded by God, of being overcome by God and God saying, this cannot remain. You need to change. You need to transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son. You need to give up your ways of darkness. You need to repent and believe. And at a certain point, there's a frustration, there's an anger that can be awakened in us. It's like, who are they? to do that. I can't believe my mom's treating me this way. I mean, you could have unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, all sorts of things build if that was, if it just stopped there and lingered for 10 years with an uncomfortable nest. That's not the eagle's agenda. That's not God's agenda. God desires to bring us from death into life. Sometimes we fight it and we want to linger in death so desperately that we hold on to our old ways and it leads to greater problems. But God loves us too much to leave us in that first comfortable nest. So the, first, the next thing, right when baby eaglet thinks that it can't get any worse, mother eagle comes up and knocks him out of the nest. Now remember, this is a high nest, right? So you could just imagine, it's like, <laughs> baby eaglet's just sort of falling to his death, right? That's in his mind. It's like, this is over, right? This whole thing about, you know, someone, this missionary coming in and stirring up my nest and changing everything and making it uncomfortable. My, I like my old life. My old nest was pretty special. And yet, as long as he remains in that old nest, when the storms come, that nest is vulnerable and he'll be vulnerable in it. But if he learns to fly, an eagle has power in its wings to rise above any storm which means Mother Eagle has to move it from that nest to something higher. But to do that, we have to stir up the first. So Mother Eagle knocks Baby Eaglet out of the nest, falling like a meteor from the sky, right? And Mother Eagle swoops down and catches Baby Eagle and moves him back to the nest. And Baby Eaglet's like, okay, if you want me to die, just let me die. Okay, what is this? Mother Eagle knocks him out again. Now, this happens over and over again. And baby eaglet, as you could guess, gets a clue somewhere along in the journey and realizes that, like mama, he has wings. And so he begins to flutter, and then mother eagle keeps catching him, and pretty soon baby eaglet actually learns to fly. Now, I remember when I first heard that, there was someone that added a caveat that I cannot prove, okay? but it's a really cool caveat. It's a really cool statement. One of those statements that, yeah, probably gets disproven somewhere, but I like it. And it fits the kingdom of heaven, which is why I'm repeating it to you, even though I can't back it up and verify it for you. And that is that in all of human history, never once has a baby eaglet been found dead on the ground. 
Now, again, I can't prove that because that seems a little extreme, right? Like Mother Eagle swooping down and someone shoots Mother Eagle and then Baby Eagle's, <laughs> you know, I'm sure... I'm guessing that probably the baby eaglet is somehow, uh, somewhere along the line, uh, fallen. But the concept behind that is very pithy and powerful. What God is doing, he is fully able to oversee unto completion. When he stirs up a nest, he has an agenda to bring you into a better place. Even though at first it looks hazardous, it looks like you're doing harm. But what you're doing is you're dismantling an infrastructure of Satan and control over someone's life so that they can live in freedom spiritually. They can truly know their God and they can have life abundant, full of glory, life eternal. You see, this is the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And you and I have been entrusted with it. And the world doesn't like it. Did we expect any different? You see, this has been the argument from the beginning. When we are entrusted with something and we're awakened to something, it becomes an immediate threat to the enemy. And the enemy is going to do his best to con you and to convince you that you need to keep that good deposit that you have received, that knowledge that you have, to yourself. Lest the same thing that happened to Jesus happen to you. Which is why we need to make a decision at the very beginning of our Christianity that what happened to Jesus we fully understand will happen to us. I still remember uh, Andrew the Apostle as he was brought before Governor Aegeus and he was, it, was, it was basically told that unless he stops preaching of this Jesus and this cross, he's going to be crucified on one too. And Andrew, who is the brother of Peter uh, and a disciple of Jesus and an apostle of Jesus, says, I would dare not have preached the glory of the cross of Christ if I was first not willing to die upon it. So Governor Aegeus wasn't too happy with that response and immediately took him out and strapped him to a cross that is shaped like an X. And he hung there for three days. You know what he did those entire three days as in absolute agony as every bone in his body was coming out of joint? He preached the gospel. I like that guy. And even after three days, the saints didn't want to lose Andrew. I mean, he's one of the apostles. That guy walked with Jesus. And so they go in and plead with Governor Aegeus to take him down. He's paid his time, right? Three days, hanging that's longer than most people ever would survive on a cross. Take him down. And Andrew overhears that they're wanting to take him down off the cross. So he cries out to heaven, Lord Jesus, I've spent my time among men. I want to come home with you. It's like, could you imagine the whole time he's being strapped to the cross, like, I finally get to go home. Then he hangs there for three days. Then he hears that they might take him down. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. And that's how he went. He, that's how he died, crying out to Jesus, don't let them take me down. I want to be with you. It's like, I don't know, there's something about that. I want a little of that. That's amazing. When we preach the glory of the cross of Christ, do we first know that we are accepting the fact that we'll likely die upon one? You see, as Christians, we need to know that. We are going against grain, against tide. We are doing something that is opposite to the firstborn state of this world. As secondborns, we see differently, we reason differently, and we understand the value of what we have found. They don't. So as a result, they will come up with elaborate schemes to try and dismiss the notion that what we're doing has value. But the real danger is when they start convincing us to be silent. And that ought not to happen. God is a nest stirrer. He goes after the first condition, and he will stir up that nest. Praise God. Another strange fact, God commands us to be nesters too. Uh, that's the little twist to the end of this one. Okay, we've accepted that God is a nester, but did you know that you're supposed to be a nester too? It's called missionary work. We stir up nests. It does not mean that we're rude. It does not mean that we're callous. It does not mean that we're unfeeling. It does not mean that we don't show sensitivity to the fact that they have been raised different, think different, sing different smell different, eat different foods. It does not mean that. It means that they need to know Jesus. And we're willing to speak 
whatever is necessary to help them realize that as long as they remain in a first condition, they will die. But if they will humble themselves and repent and believe in Jesus Christ, they can live. I don't know if you guys have seen this. This is called the missionary motto of Stanley Dale. Yes, I've read it every single episode so far. Going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, dying triumphantly. Now, we've had a prayer for each one of these so far, and we're at eight now, but I'm just going to go through them. I'm not going to read which episode they were, but in order, I'll be going through it. Lord, prepare me for the heavenly call. Lord, refine my taste buds for all heavenly delicacies. Lord, season me, toughen me, and prepare me for all difficulty. Lord, may I be preoccupied with that which preoccupies you. Lord, may I uncover that which is in the thicket from my Sawi tribe. Lord, may I be a doer and not just a hearer. Lord, show me clearly that I am never out of your sight. And today's, Lord, may I stand when others sit. Father, we need something from heaven to enter inside of us. We need the power, the boldness, and the courage of the Most High God to carry us forward into this commission. Lord, we've spent so many years justifying our non-activity. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we'd spend the upcoming years committing ourselves and actually moving forward unto real-life action for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. Spirit of God, move in us and through us to see that this world is awakened to the power of the gospel. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.